0: reading comes from Matthew chapter 18 verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart.
1: What is the kingdom of heaven like? What is the kingdom of heaven like? Now, notice I didn't say, what is heaven like? We're not going to do one of those, you know, heaven tourism things where I died and I went to heaven and came back and told you all about it. What's the kingdom of heaven like? You know, as we've already mentioned, studying through Matthew's gospel, Jesus uses this phrase kingdom of heaven at least 31 times. In fact, he actually began his ministry with the declaration that set the tone for his entire ministry, Matthew four seventeen. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the coming of the kingdom of heaven was the center of Jesus' message and his mission. So what is the kingdom of heaven like? Jesus never, in all of the times they mentions the kingdom of heaven, gives us a dictionary definition of what the kingdom of heaven is. But he does offer us many parables or stories. They kind of give us glimpses of the kingdom. In fact, back in Matthew chapter 13, you might remember, we looked at six of them. There were six right in a row where Jesus kept saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then gave a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then gave another parable. And we called them postcards. Postcards from the kingdom. Because the postcards are just kind of glimpses. They're snapshots. They're only a little taste. Of what you've experienced when you send a postcard home from vacation. And the parables are kind of like that. They're like postcards of the kingdom of heaven. It gives us a little glimpse. Just a taste of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And it elicits in us a response of, wow, that's beautiful. I want to go there. I want to see more. I want to know more. So, so Jesus doesn't give us a definition ever of the kingdom of heaven, but he gives us glimpses, tastes, parables, pictures of the kingdom. Because, friends, I believe the kingdom of heaven is not something so much to be explained as it is to be experienced. I don't think the kingdom of heaven is something that it, it, Jesus ever gives us a definition of, but he sure does give us some directions to the kingdom of heaven. And it's clear that when he uses this phrase over and over again, the kingdom of heaven, he, he's in part using it because remember, the people of his day were looking for a kingdom. They were looking for a messiah who they thought was going to be a great military leader and overthrow Rome, who was currently oppressing them. And so they thought that the Messiah would be a great military leader and bring his kingdom, and that kingdom would be a physical kingdom. It would be an earthly kingdom. And he says, no, it's not like that. I do bring a kingdom, but it's the kingdom of heaven. It's a spiritual kingdom. So, so the kingdom of heaven is right now invading earth. And so for now, for Jesus' first coming, it's a spiritual kingdom, but one day he, we do learn That he says, I will come back. And at that time, what is a spiritual kingdom will become the eternal, physical kingdom of God. And all other kingdoms will bow their knee to the kingdom of Christ. One day, what was inaugurated at his first coming will be finalized in his second coming. But in his first coming, friends, Jesus brought his kingdom. And that's actually what we celebrate at Christmas time, isn't it? I mean, what are we going to sing? We're going to sing, What child is this? This this is Christ the King. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her. King. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn. King. We recognize that at the first coming, at Christmas, a king was born. And if a king has come, a king has brought his kingdom. And what is that kingdom like? What is the kingdom of so this Advent season, what we're going to do together is we're not going to stop our study through Matthew's Gospel. But instead, I am going to skip around a little bit because we're going to consider the question, what is the kingdom of heaven like? If we believe that Jesus was born that first Christmas to bring the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven invading earth, then what is that kingdom like? And today we're beginning with the parable that Jeannie just read for us, which is at the end of Matthew 18, which happens to be right where we were when we when we transition here. So it's nice. We're going to kind of continue here and then we'll jump around some. But Matthew chapter 18, you remember a couple weeks ago, it began with a statement, with a discussion of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18 verses 1 through 4 say, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus doesn't give us a definition of the kingdom of heaven, but notice right here he's given us some directions too. The kingdom of heaven, he says, the way into the kingdom, it's humility. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The way into the kingdom of heaven is humility. And the way to greatness in the kingdom of heaven is the same. It's humility. So Jesus' kingdom is clearly not like any of the kingdoms of this world, where we fight and we feud and we push and we posture our way to greater and greater positions. Jesus says he's a king. And he's bringing a kingdom, and the kingdom of heaven is accessed by humility. But more than that, the parable that Jeannie just read for us tells us that what characterizes this kingdom is not just humility, like we saw earlier in this chapter, but what characterizes the kingdom of heaven is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, there's a problem with Forgiveness. You know, Christian author C.S. Lewis said it well. Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. We all like that idea, don't we? Until you're the one who is sinned against. Until you're the one who is offended. Until you're the one who has to do the forgiving. We like the idea of forgiveness, but we don't always like the reality of it. And the problem is that today's parable... And the rest of scripture tells us, friends, that the, in the kingdom of heaven, forgiveness isn't just a suggestion. It's a command. Forgive as he forgives. Forgive as he forgives. And church, such forgiveness is the characteristic Of the kingdom of the heaven, and it's the characteristic of those of us who are in the kingdom of heaven. Do you notice how Jesus began the parable in verse 23? He said, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So friends, the kingdom of heaven is like the king of the kingdom. Forgiving. And those who live in that kingdom are like the king. They forgive. Now, friends, this isn't about feelings of forgiving. This isn't about abstract notions of forgiveness. This is about the real and the tangible action of forgiving. And Jesus is telling this parable in response to Peter's question in verse 21. Peter comes up to Jesus and says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, friends, within the Judaism of Jesus' day, It was considered that if you forgave someone who sinned against you three times, then that was sufficient to demonstrate that you had a very forgiving spirit. So when Peter said seven times, he probably thought, yeah, Jesus is going to like this one. Hey, Jesus, not just three. How about seven? And Jesus responds in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy seven times. Now, friends, Jesus isn't saying on offense number 78, you give the offender the boot. Jesus' point, he's using hyperbole to say, you forgive without keeping record. You forgive without keeping track. Forgive lavishly, extravagantly, ridiculously, because that is how the king has forgiven you. He doesn't remember your debt. He doesn't keep track of it. He forgives it. And then he says, let me tell you a story to illuminate how it is in the kingdom of heaven. And he talks about the man who in deep debt is brought before the king. This man owed 10,000 talents. Now, friends, I've read all kinds of ways trying to approximate just how much this man owed. And I've heard everywhere from several million dollars to several trillion dollars. The point is Jesus is still using hyperbole here to express an amount of money that the average hearer would have heard and gone, whoa, that is more money than I could ever hope to hold, process, own ever in multiple lifetimes. It was meant to blow their minds. Look at how much he owes Just as 77 was hyperbole to say, just continue doing it, this debt was incalculably, unpayably huge. And the king, in his response, planning to sell the man and his family to pay the debt, that would have been considered completely just. Friends, that was perfectly in line with the practice of that day. And everyone listening to the parable would have nodded their heads along with Jesus like, yeah, I don't know how you managed to get a debt like that. But that dope definitely deserves to be sold into slavery. Can't believe you did that. My goodness. And friends, that's the point. The point is. The servant absolutely deserved whatever was coming to him. He deserved punishment. He deserved to be sold into slavery for this unpayable debt that he had accrued. What the servant did not deserve at all is what he actually received. Which was forgiveness. Because friends, forgiveness is never deserved. Forgiveness is never deserved. Forgiveness is always given to someone who doesn't deserve it. Forgiveness can only ever be freely given because forgiveness can never be earned. You can never deserve forgiveness. Jesus' hearers would have been. Stunned by the king's action in this parable. This debt was beyond anything that they could even fathom ever touching in their lifetimes. This was a debtor completely undeserving of anything but justice. And yet he's completely forgiven. The debt is released. And the shock of Jesus' original hearers at what the king did would have only been trumped by what the servant turned around and then did. Because the second servant owed the first 100 denarii. Again, modern approximations of how much that is vary widely. But here's the point. It's a 6,000 to 1 ratio. The debt that the first servant owed to the king was 6,000 times greater than the debt that the servant, number two, owed servant number one. The second servant owed 6,000 times less And yet the servant, the first servant, wouldn't forgive him. Having been forgiven so great a debt, Jesus hears would have been shocked at how unwilling the first servant was to forgive this much, 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 much smaller debt. Now you need to understand, at no point did the second servant now deserve to have his debt forgiven, just because the first servant had had his forgiven. He didn't deserve it any more than the first servant deserved it. This isn't about deserving. Friends, forgiveness can't be deserved. It can't be demanded. However, the second servant was just as unable to pay the first servant as the first servant had been unable to pay the king. And yet, while the first servant was shown indescribable mercy, he now refuses to show any mercy at all to the second servant. Again, it's true, friends, the first servant didn't need to forgive the second servant. He was under no obligation. The second servant did not deserve forgiveness just because the first had been forgiven. The debt of the second servant to the first was still absolutely real. It was still absolutely owed. The first servant was absolutely within his rights to demand payment for the debt that was owed to him. But the point of the parable is that the kingdom of heaven doesn't work that way. The kingdom of heaven doesn't work that way. Because, friends, the kingdom of heaven is not about what you are owed. The kingdom of heaven is about what you were forgiven. The kingdom of heaven is not about what you were owed, but about what you were forgiven. When someone sins against you, friends, you are absolutely owed a debt. It is real and you have every right to demand that the one who has sinned against you pay you in full. Church, understand forgiveness is not denying that there's a debt. Oh, they didn't really hurt me. Forgiveness is not minimizing the debt. Oh, it's not really that big a deal. One of the things that Lee and I worked really hard with when we were raising our own kids is we didn't let them get away with saying, oh, it's okay. It's okay. It's not a big deal. We said, no, you ask for forgiveness and you grant forgiveness. Because, friends, only forgiveness admits just how real and how huge a debt is. Only genuine forgiveness acknowledges just how undeserving the debtor is. Only forgiveness can release a debtor completely. Christian musician Matthew West wrote an utterly profound song that he simply titled as forgiveness. He sings a forgiveness that it always goes to those who don't deserve. It's the opposite of how you feel when the pain they caused is just too real. It takes everything you have just to say the word forgiveness. And friends, that's so true because the pain is so real. You can't pretend it didn't happen. Don't minimize what's been done to you. They don't deserve forgiveness because no one deserves forgiveness. In fact, West goes on to sing, even when the jury and the judge say you've got a right to hold a grudge, it's the whisper in your ear saying, set it free. Forgiveness. Church, when you are sinned against, you have every right to demand repayment, just as the first servant had every right to grab his debtor, the second servant and demand payment of him. The jury and the judge would have agreed with the first servant. And church, you can demand your rights all day long because that debt deserves justice. The offender deserves to pay every last cent. But Jesus teaches the kingdom of heaven is not about what you're owed. It's about what you've been forgiven. The king's response to the first man is Jesus' word to you and to me. Matthew 18, verse 33. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I... Have mercy on you. The kingdom of heaven is not about what you're owed. The kingdom of heaven is about what you've been forgiven. The kingdom of heaven is characterized by forgiveness. And friends, you might be hearing this and go, that is not fair. And church, that's the gospel. That's the good news. The good news is that the kingdom of God is not fair. Church, the kingdom of God is not about rights. The kingdom of God is not about what you deserve. I am so glad that God has not treated me fairly according to what my sins deserve. You and I stand before the king like the first servant did. And each one of us has accrued a debt that is beyond imagination. You need to only just take a minute and try to calculate the debt you accrued this last week by your thoughts and your words and your actions. Just consider the wrongs you've done. And not just the wrongs you've done, but all the good things that you've left undone. Can you ever hope to repay all of the wrongs that you've done just this last week? Now multiply that by a lifetime. Friends, the debt that we've accrued is immense and incalculable, far beyond our ability to ever, ever pay. And God can't simply pretend that a debt hasn't been accrued. He can't just minimize what we have done because He's a perfectly just King. And justice does not prevent, pretend that an offense hasn't happened. Justice does not perfe- pretend that an offense is not a big deal. Justice declares that you and I are unquestionably guilty. Guilty. The debt is real and it can't be ignored or minimized. However, friends, then comes the good news of the gospel. Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, summarized it beautifully. He says, The power of the gospel comes in two movements. First, it says, I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. Friends, the judge and the jury agree. We are guilty. And the offense is far worse than we ever believed. The debt is real and far greater than imagined. But after that first movement of, I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe, but then quickly follows with, I am more accepted and loved than I ever dared hope. Friends, how is that possible? It's possible because the debt... That separates us from the king, which cannot be ignored or minimized, but which needs to be paid in full, has been paid for us. Because understand that for a debt to be forgiven, it always must be paid. Friends, for a debt to be forgiven, it must always be paid. There is always a price to pay in forgiveness. When my son Joshua was two years old, He threw my digital camera. Remember when we used to have digital cameras? He threw my digital camera into the kiddie pool. And let's say that it did not take pictures the same way after that. And when Joshua realized that he destroyed the camera, he felt horrible. And I said, don't cry, buddy. Daddy loves you and he forgives you. And you're like, well, of course, I mean, you know, a loving father, that's what you should do. But answer me this. Who pays for the new camera? I do. Because there's always a price to be paid in forgiveness. Friends, if somebody insults you in front of others and you graciously say, "I forgive you," who paid the price? Who bore the brunt of that insult? You did. Friends, for God to say, "I forgive you," the debt had to be paid by someone. And so Jesus came and sent was sent To pay your debt on the cross. As Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, God forgave us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Nailed to the cross, paid in full. This is the gospel. Friends, the horror of the cross of Jesus Christ doesn't pretend that there was no debt. The horror of the cross of Jesus Christ does not minimize the debt that we owed. Jesus took the full penalty and punishment of our debt upon himself on the cross and he paid it in full. The father's wrath completely satisfied, as we sang this morning. Friends, God did not treat us and does not treat us as we deserve. Praise God He didn't give us fairness. God in His grace has given us forgiveness. And church, that is the standard of the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven is not about what you're owed. The kingdom of heaven is about what you've been forgiven. Jesus asks, in light of the forgiveness that you yourself have received, how can you now approach the one who hurts you with any less than mercy and forgiveness as you yourself have received? It says Jesus is the standard for the kingdom of heaven. It's like we sang in the opening song. How good it is to embrace His command, to prefer one another and forgive as he forgives. To forgive as He's forgiven us. And friends, amazingly, isn't that actually what the Lord's Prayer also assumes? When Jesus taught His disciples how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do you understand what Jesus says here and what he says in the very final line of the parable today? Jesus says somehow that our, the forgiveness of our sins is somehow connected to or conditioned by our forgiveness of other people's sins. There's some kind of relationship here. That is how seriously God takes the issue of forgiveness. Because forgiveness characterizes The kingdom of heaven. Now, understanding all of this, let's just take a minute to consider what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not. First, friends, what forgiveness is not as we seek to apply this. Forgiveness is not just overlooking annoyances. Church, listen, there is a difference between bearing with one another and forgiving one another. You know, interestingly, when you read through the scriptures, you actually find these two ideas, forgiving one another and bearing one another, often side by side or in the same section of teaching. For example, Ephesians chapter four, verse two says that we're supposed to walk together with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. But then Paul concludes that same chapter, chapter 4, verse 32, saying, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Or he makes the same distinction together in the same verse, Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. He says we should be bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against each other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. So, notice in these two passages two things. First, the call to forgive is our our call to forgive others is always birthed from Christ's forgiveness of us. Because the kingdom of heaven is not about what you owed, it's about what you've been forgiven. And we are called here multiple times, here and other places in Scripture, to forgive as we've been forgiven. Second, notice that both these teachings make a distinction between bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And the difference, friends, Bearing with one another might better be translated as enduring one another or putting up with one another. Because we just plain have to learn sometimes to put up with one another. You know, the thing about the body of Christ is you don't get to choose who's part of the body of Christ. God is reconciling to himself a diverse body of people from every tribe, tongue and nation, from different political persuasions, economic strata, social groups, people with bad habits, people from different cultures, people of varying opinions, people who think differently, dress differently, decide differently, act differently from you. And some of their habits might disgust you. Some of their music might irritate you. Their lifestyles might embarrass you. The sins, the ones which they're struggling to overcome, might appall you. But church, notice none of those things are sin issues which you need to forgive. But if we're going to live together, sometimes we just have to learn to bear with one another. We, just because you're offended by someone or something doesn't automatically mean they've sinned against you. And friends, that's really important to hear again today. Just because you're offended doesn't automatically mean someone sinned against you. Just because your feelings are hurt doesn't necessarily mean you've been sinned against. So often the issue that we need to approach one another with in the church is not forgiveness, but forbearance. For by the grace of Christ, we learn to bear with and live with those who are different from us, whether they're in the church or maybe in our own households. We need to learn To bear with one another. Secondly, we need to understand not all offenses against us require confrontation. Not every time you are sinned against must you confront it. You see, you have two choices when you're sinned against. When somebody actually does hurt you, you have two choices and only two choices. And let me give you a spoiler alert. Bitterness is not one of them. When someone actually sins against you, you have only two choices. And I like how Christian author Tim Challey summarized it. Christians don't get to hold a grudge. You've got two options when a person commits an offense against you. You can overlook it or you can confront it. You can overlook it or you can confront it. Those are your only two choices. We just spent a couple weeks looking at Matthew 18 where Jesus taught us how do we confront sin? When somebody sins against us, how do we approach them? Not with the goal of winning the argument. Not with the goal of twisting an arm and getting an apology. How do we confront a sin with the goal of forgiveness? And the goal of winning back our brother. Gaining back our sister. So that we can let that offense go. So you can confront it. And deal with it with the goal of reconciliation, or you can just cover it. Not cover it up, but you can cover it with love. Because, friends, minor personal slights or offenses can be overlooked and covered in love. In fact, the author of Proverbs, Proverbs 19.11, teaches, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. The Apostle Peter then taught us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers. Love covers a multitude of sins. So you can confront it or you can cover it with love and let it go. Either way, the goal is the same. The goal is forgiveness. The goal is letting it go. But friends, if you have bitterness, that's the canary in the coal mine. If there is bitterness, if you are holding a grudge, if you are carrying anger with you, if you are subtly or not so subtly looking for ways to make him or her pay, then you need to either confront it or cover it with the goal of letting it go. Because the Christian does not get to live with bitterness. The Christian does not live with a grudge because that's not the way it is in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is characterized by forgiveness. And we get to forgiveness either by confronting it or by covering it. And either way, we're letting it go. Because forgiveness is letting it go. In fact, I like how Annie Lamott summarized it. She said, forgiveness means it finally becomes unimportant that you hit back. It becomes unimportant that you hit back or you make them pay. Now, friends, at this point, I need to offer an important caveat. Forgiveness, what we're talking about here and what Jesus is talking about is your personal posture towards the person who hurt you. Please understand that the law has a God-given responsibility to make the offender pay. God has given just governments and authorities who are tasked with making sure those who are doing real evils are restrained and do not continue to do evil. So you choosing to forgive doesn't mean that one who hurts you in some ways doesn't face consequences for their actions. Forgiving someone who abused you sexually or physically does not mean that your abuser should not face jail time. Forgiving The hurt that an alcoholic family member has has caused you doesn't mean that you should continue to tolerate her continued alcoholism. Forgiving an abusive person doesn't mean that you should continue to put yourself in a situation where you endure that abuse. Friends, allowing a person to continue unrepentantly in harmful or illegal activities does them no favors. It does them no favors. The forgiveness that Jesus is talking about here, friends, is your personal posture towards the one who hurt you. Do you still want to hurt him because he hurt you? Are you still waiting for an apology from her? Are you justifying unkind actions towards your friend or maybe towards your spouse? Because, well, he's treated me this way for years. So I deserve to do this. I deserve to treat her this way because of the way that she's been towards me for so long. Friends, are you still trying to exact payment from your debtor? Because let me assure you, the payment you extract from them will never be enough. Just how much payment is going to make up for the abuse you've suffered? Just how much payment will pay for the betrayal you experienced. Just how much pain will fill that emptiness. It'll never be enough. The debt they owe you is real and it's terrible. And you have every right to demand that it be paid in full. But Jesus teaches here that the kingdom of heaven is not about what you're owed. It's about what you have been Forgiven. And the same cross where your debt was paid in full, the same mercy by which you were forgiven, is the same hope of forgiveness for those who have harmed you. Forgive as He forgives. And church, I know that this is all so easy to say, and this is so hard to do. In fact, it's not just hard, let's be honest. It's impossible. Forgiveness is impossible if not for what Christ did on the cross. Friends, Christ's forgiveness is the key that unlocks our forgiveness of others. Christ is the well from which we might draw forgiveness. Christ is the power by which we might be able to finally let it go. Our hope in God's perfect justice is Allows us to let go of our need to express our own imperfect justice upon that person. And then instead we can open our hearts in compassion towards that person who's hurt us. So what is the kingdom of heaven like? Church, it's characterized by forgiveness. And how now will Christ's forgiveness characterize you? Let's pray. Oh, Father, there's nothing easy about this. There's nothing easy about talking about forgiveness. Because, Lord, the pain is real. The debts against us are real. But so was our debt against You. So was our sin before You. And yet You graciously forgave. You paid that debt in full, took it upon Yourself. That we might bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O our souls. Now, Father, give us the strength, give us the grace, that we might forgive as we have been forgiven. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. In closing.